Owners of earthquake-prone buildings are in a dilemma, pay expensive strengthening costs or do nothing and risk losing tenants and money. Up to 25,000 quake-prone buildings dot the country, with heritage buildings making up at least 12%. The government wants them all upgraded or knocked down within the next 20 years, but some building owners can't afford the work, prompting fears whole streets could be destroyed. Nobody in Wellington worried about code before the Christchurch earthquake. We all started to talk about code after the Christchurch earthquake. Code, also known as the National Building Standard, wasn't on Mark Dnajcik's mind when he bought the Harcourts building in 2001. It's 17% of the code, half of what it should be to escape being categorised as quake-prone. That's the way it was. When people, when we had earthquakes, people just didn't bother, went to work next morning as they always did. But nowadays, they won't go into a building until you have an engineer's report that the building is safe. It's just a complete change of attitude. Mark Dnajcik knows how dramatically people's attitudes have changed since the Canterbury earthquakes. Virtually all of his tenants on the seven floors of the 1928 Central City building fled after the February quake. What was worth $22 million before the quakes is now worth nothing, and Mr Danajcik is desperate to knock it down and rebuild. However, a court has ruled the Category 1 Historic Place building must stay, but Mr Danajcik is unwilling to spend any more money on it. It will crumble sooner or later. It won't be in my lifetime, but it will crumble, and it will be just a very derelict building on Lampton Key. The situation presents a dilemma, which the Building and Construction Minister, Maurice Williamson, wants solved. We've got to find a way of getting our officials to resolve that dilemma that exists between wanting to get the buildings either safe or have them demolished, but also wanting to protect anything that is truly heritage. But I will not live with a policy that leaves buildings out there that are grossly unsafe to the public. And if a big roller comes through, they fall down and kill a lot of people on the road because then it would come back on, well, why didn't I do something about it? I'm Kushla Norman and Insight This Week asks at what cost should heritage be saved and who should carry that cost? There's a warning on the door of Mark Dnajcik's Harcourts building to those who use it as a thoroughfare. Danger. It suffered bad cracks in the recent major earthquakes centred in Seddon, although Mr Dnajcik wishes it had fared a lot worse. His attitude to the building now that it must stay up is demolition by dereliction, and his attitude to those who want it saved is to pay up. He who pays the piper calls the tune. If they tell you what to do, they let them pay. It's a fundamental principle in the Western democracies. So what makes a building quake-prone? I meet the Building and Construction Minister, Maurice Williamson, in what is considered to be the safest building in the country, the Beehive, which has been built to withstand a 9.4 earthquake. He explains why buildings under 34% of the code are to be identified as earthquake-prone. It's all about trying to balance off risk or trying to price that risk. If we set that standard too high, now fortunately the Royal Commission thought 34%, 
was where most buildings would withstand quite cataclysmic rumbles. But if we got a 1 in 5,000 year event, one that we've not seen during our time on, in New Zealand soil, but if a 1 in 5,000 year event rolled through, it would tear a whole lot of our buildings to pieces. But the chances of it are way, way less than you winning lottery. So what do engineers make of the 34% threshold? The executive officer of the Society for Earthquake Engineers, Wynne Clark, says the government should have been aiming for 67%. If you've got a building that is 67% or better, you've got less risk than in a moderate earthquake or in a uh, more significant earthquake event uh, that you won't get significant damage that could cause a, a life risk or you won't get collapse of the building. What makes a building a risky building? What are the sort of the signals to you that you go, oh, I wouldn't want to go in that one? If you look at actually four things, that's the form of the building, how is it being constructed? Is it a, a large open spaces or uh, have you got a, an L-shaped or some other shape of building which can make it more vulnerable? Then if you look at, at the, the materials, you know, what is the quality of the material? Are they uniform, strength, that sort of thing? Then the workmanship, that's very important as to how well the building has been constructed. And then fourthly, has the building been maintained? And the experience from Christchurch is that even with unreinforced masonry buildings, if you've got those four things, those buildings survive. Just out of central Wellington in the suburb of Island Bay is Erskine College. It's an impressive but decrepit collection of early 20th century Gothic style buildings which served as a Catholic girls boarding school until the 80s and featured in Peter Jackson's film The Frighteners. More recently it was used as a function centre. However, the Wellington City Council red stickered it last year, meaning it's such an earthquake risk it's too dangerous to occupy. Its owner, Ian Castles, takes me around the rabbit warren of a place which is all locked up to keep vandals out. So what made you buy it in the first place? I thought we could solve it. I thought we had a really good solution. And in those days, it, it sounds a little bit pie in the sky now, but we, we really wanted to, because it's got a fair, fair amount of land, we thought we could build a sort of inhabited wall around the outside of it, far enough away from the old buildings to give them the distance and... and uh, maintain the, the views of them, a little bit like Windsor Castle. But, but uh, I don't think anybody thought that was a hell of a good idea. <laughs> I, I really thought it was wonderful. But, uh, Do you regret the purchase? Um, well, I'm not giving up yet. I'm not saying that, I'm not, I'm not saying that, that it's finished, so not yet. That may change. Restoring and strengthening Erskine College would cost millions of dollars, something Ian Castle says is just not feasible because it would be difficult to attract a high-rent-paying tenant to Island Bay. One of Mr Castle's ideas is to donate the chapel, the garden and part of the college to a trust and knock down the remainder of the college and build houses around the rest of the five-acre site. But he says he needs enthusiastic support to do it. This building is loved by the community, or a lot of people say that. So they really need to be prepared to support it. Now, the best way of doing that in, in a lot of cases is by using the rating system to produce the results that you want. If somebody has a heritage building in the community wants it not to be pulled down, then that, that, that site is effectively operating at a, 
a lot less capacity than if it, if it could happen. So therefore it should be rated on a lower basis as a result of that. And I think there's also possibilities for uh, councils to help with uh, insurance costs, which are quite burdensome. And other things, I mean, it's, it's possible, for instance, to, and there's a lot of talk in Wellington at the moment about facilitating funding and, and, and using something like the council borrowing rate, which is a hell of a lot better than private owners can, can access, and paying that back through the rating base. So your rates would go up by an agreed amount for 20 or so years, but you'd get access to reasonably good finance. Now, all of those things aren't, aren't a particular risk or cost to the ratepayer, but uh, they produce the benefit. It's obvious some earthquake strengthening work is going on around Wellington. The city's tallest office block, the Majestic Centre for instance, is getting a $54 million upgrade, which will bring it up to 100% of the new building code. The Wellington City Council says there's been a jump in consents to do strengthening work since the set-in quakes. The director of its earthquake resilience programme, Neville Brown, urges building owners not to panic. I think we've got to be careful that we just treat it as business as usual and don't panic into a decision that may not be the right one. And I, I encourage all building owners to think very carefully about the strengthening solution that they, they put in place. And, and I guess the landscape has changed since uh, Christchurch. The tenants who would normally uh, rent a building have become much more particular, if you like, around uh, the structural integrity of the building. So they are demanding higher standards. And unfortunately, building owners uh, are being forced with quite a difficult decision. They either invest a significant amount of money and have a tenant, um, or they do nothing and have no tenant. Wellington has always been considered the quake capital of New Zealand and its building standards are higher to reflect that, but the government's edict applies to the whole country, including Auckland, where GNS Science puts the probability of a strong quake at every 500 to 1,000 years. Andrew Turpin owns several century-old quake-prone buildings in the inner-city suburb of Kingsland, the most populous urban area in the country. They're fully tenanted, and he says if it wasn't for the government's rules, he wouldn't strengthen them. And Mr Turpin, like Mr Denaychik and Mr Castles, says it's not right that councils, historical groups and the public can demand buildings be saved and not help pay. It's unfair that other people want you to keep the building because it's old, and they want you to do it up to bring it up to earthquake standards, and we're not getting any help. We haven't been offered anything. There's no tax incentives, nothing. The Minister for Building and Construction, Maurice Williamson, says the government's looking at possible financial incentives and will have a better idea of what sort of relief there could be by the end of next month. But he agrees with the building owners. Those that want the old building saved should stump up with the cash. If I was so desperately wanting an old boat in the Auckland marina to be protected... I would go out and start raising funds. I would start calling up people and saying, how about you join me in getting some money together to protect the old boat rather than seeing it demolished or burnt up in the harbour one day, uh, rather than saying, well, that boat's got to be protected, but I'm not helping. The debate over who should pay raises the question of who should benefit. The Historic Places Trust says it's not in the business of commercial property development. But its chief executive, Bruce Chapman, says it would have accepted Mark Denaychik's offer to buy the Harcourts building for a dollar had he not made one of the conditions that it couldn't be on sold to a developer. Yeah, why would we not sell it to an investor is the question. 
I mean, if it's going to be a commercially viable proposition, then that would be the logical thing to do. So I think he's, he's asked a question that he obviously expects us to say no to. Um, but in fact, that is actually the logical outcome, that if he doesn't want to earthquake strengthen it himself, then he needs to be prepared to sell it on to somebody else who is. It's a debate many Aucklanders feel they shouldn't be caught up in. But Maurice Williamson warns they're not immune to earthquakes either. On a Sunday earlier this year, I think it was in April, I was sitting at home with my family on a three o'clock having some afternoon tea and our whole house started going boom, boom, bang, bang and my kids took to the ground and were scared stiff because we had a really good shake come through. The thing you've got to understand is that this policy is specific to each area. So an NBS standard and therefore 34% of that NBS standard in Auckland is way, 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 way lower than the same NBS for Wellington. So if you have, say, oh, well, I'm in Auckland, I shouldn't have to do what Wellington has to do, you don't. Because we think the likelihood of any big roller doing some real big damage in Auckland is very low, the new building standard up there is quite dramatically lower, and you may actually have to do only a few things. Martin is one of the rural towns feeling the pressure of strengthening requirements. Population 5,000, the probability of a strong one every 20 to 50 years. It's the hub of the Rangatiki district and is one of the few New Zealand towns that still has its original streetscape. Two local history buffs, Rod Smith and John Vickers, take me on a tour. One of the churches. Uh, that church is closed on the moment and they're meeting in the hall at the back. Because of earthquake Because issues. awaiting engineers' reports and so on. And um, all these buildings uh, would have trouble meeting the standards, some to a, a greater or lesser degree. But again, getting occupants for them, retailing, is, uh, is not easy. And uh, pull into this park here and we can get out on the street. They've taken me to a block of 100-year-old, largely vacant buildings, which have caused a bit of excitement in the town recently. The rumour is they've been bought by a, uh, uh, an Auckland person. Very unexpected good news, actually. <laughs> Any idea what this Auckland developer could do with that? No, we hope he's got us some bright ideas. Yeah, well, that's right, because uh, originally Martin was self-sufficient and the, the number of businesses and retailers, you could get everything here in Martin. But these days, it's not easy being in business in rural New Zealand. You see, this over here was a uh, clothing or menswear shop. Yeah. And it was a family business, and it was there for donkey chairs. Look at it now, it's a $2 shop. And these would, have, these would be earthquake-prone, would they? Well, they would, but having said that, they're very good quality brick buildings, and they were built to a high standard and they've still got their parapets and uh, all their features that uh, often have been removed in other centres and uh, have had a number of earthquakes here and uh, do not show any effect. Yes, officially they are earthquake prone, but they are 100 years old and they're still here. The Mayor of Martin up until the recent elections, Chalky Leary, thinks the government's policy is over the top. Since these buildings were built, there's been massive earthquakes. There's never been any issues. A friend of mine is the mayor at Selwyn, and he said that the old buildings stood up the whole lot. Everything fell over and fell off them, but the buildings themselves stayed intact. I believe the same would happen in Martin. It's the chimneys, the un 
supported verandas and the, the parapet thingies. That's the problem. And we could fix that. And that's where we were heading. But the new rules say it's got to be 32% or something, whatever it is, by 20 years. And that's going to create problems. Is it a bit of an overreaction? Oh, I think so. Like, for heaven's sakes, it's like having an earthquake without having an earthquake. To the north of Martin is Whanganui, and both share the same quake probability. Whanganui has about 1% of the population and 10% of the country's quake-prone buildings, including many historic ones. The heritage aspect of central Whanganui is really important to us and our image, and so we're doing what we can to actually save them. So right now, there are no plans to demolish them. Whanganui's mayor, Annette Main, is firmly in favour of saving the council's heritage stock, which in itself is a major tourist attraction, contributing about $40 million a year to the local economy. The council's increasing rates by about $10 a year to pay for the strengthening of its 20 earthquake-prone buildings, including the 114-year-old Opera House. This one's not our most difficult building to strengthen. It's a wooden building too, and so you can be a lot more innovative with these ones. So yeah. you're quite comfortable with there being shows on in here, even though it is only at 10%? Yeah, well, it's risk. You have to look at the risk. And if this was a building that people were spending 24 hours a day in, the risk would be considerably higher. But the reality is that when the shows are on, they're usually for two hours at a time, maybe a little bit more, and so that risk is, is, is much less. So this fund, how much is in it so far? Oh, well, so far it's not very much because we um, we have to rate 20 million, but we also need to stage that and we only need to rate for it when we know we're going to do the work. So we've only rated a small part of that now and it's a long-term plan to get enough money to look after our council buildings. 80% of the buildings on Whanganui's main street are considered quake-prone and some are even starting to empty out as worried tenants end leases. Recently, the clothing and outdoor goods store, Katmandu, closed its Whanganui store, giving the owners two months to strengthen it to 67% of the code. The chair of Whanganui's earthquake-prone building community task force, Richard Thompson, says that's a blunt approach and it's putting pressure on owners. In my opinion, that's um, not a sophisticated approach to this. It should be, what are the real risks to our customers and to our staff? Uh, and if the risks are actually around stuff falling off the parapet and veranda, but they're perfectly safe inside the building, then you know you could accept a building that's maybe only 33% of code. And what we don't want to see, and there's been some of that happen here, is where the government department tenants rush out of the CBD try and find or build a new building somewhere out of town and it just weakens the whole infrastructure of the central city. Dave Corney's building company, DML, is doing most of the strengthening work in Whanganui. He's got five projects on the go at the moment. He's also busy testing products that could make the work a whole lot cheaper. So we're actually going to push over a, a brick wall and we're going to put the products on the face and then we're going to put an airbag behind it and it's all on the computer and then they're going to push it to so far to see where the breaking zones are. It covers the whole brick face, so it stops the, contains the bricks together. So it's like a glue on. So you sort of paint glue. it on? Yeah, no, it's troweled on like a physical plaster system. And I mean, if you get good results, you could be gluing the whole of Wanganui with this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think we'll be gluing the whole of Wanganui, but yeah, look, let's hope. It's, I, I can definitely see the benefits. And um, I guess this should make it cheaper. 
Yes. What 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 we've found is the, the cost difference between your thirty three percent and your sixty seven percent is, if we price a building at thirty three percent, we don't actually have to to strip the whole building to get it up to the rating, but once we go to sixty seven, we just about have to remove all the internal linings. So then the cost comes back out to the fit out. Like Whanganui, heritage buildings are part of Dunedin's character. You look at around the building, the, the ceiling itself is probably one of the most impressive ceilings in Dunedin, if, if not the entire country, and it just sort of shows the wealth that, you know, that was being pulled through this bank at the time. The Heritage Policy Planner at Dunedin City Council, Glenn Hazelton, admires the ceiling of a newly restored and strengthened old bank building on Princess Street. It's a an amazing latin plaster ceiling. You could stare at it for hours and still find new detail through it every time you do. And, you know, a massive chandelier in the middle. It's the, the kind of thing that you can't imagine any building today going to that kind of detail. Dunedin City Council is yet to formally crunch the numbers on earthquake-prone buildings, but it expects there could be up to 2,000, including potentially 200 heritage-listed. A local structural engineer, Lou Robinson, has been doing hundreds of quake-prone building assessments around Otago and has been noticing huge variations in the estimated cost of strengthening. He's working on guidelines that will make the process clearer. You could get four engineers to do an assessment of one building, you could have four different, vastly different answers. So that's part of the process now of upgrading this document to make it clearer. So some engineers will always go towards the conservative ends of things and, and end up with a, 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 a result that's in, implausible many, many times. They score so low, some of these buildings, that they should really have blown away on a wind. So that's what I mean by implausible. So there, there needs to be some sort of peer review system, I think, to sort of try and temper it. The Mayor of Dunedin, Dave Cull, is keen to see Dunedin's heritage precincts prosper and he's suggesting rates relief for building owners as an incentive. For instance, one of the challenges when uh, an owner buys a building and does it up is that immediately its value goes up, so the rate bill goes up. You know, they're spending a whole lot of money on earthquake strengthening, a whole lot of money on perhaps fire egress and disabled um, access, all that kind of thing, and then the rates bill goes up as well, and they're not necessarily getting a great deal more in rent. So we may be able to come up with ways of saying, OK, your rates won't go up for five years or or they'll go up over 10 years so that it gives you a bit of breathing space. And I think the rate payer, the, the council doesn't lose anything from that because we weren't getting a very high rate take in the first place. And the fact that the, the benefits to the community are the refurbishment and restoration of a neighbourhood, that, that, that's great. So if we, can, if we can give building owners in those situations a bit of a hand, that's what we'll do. However, Glenn Hazelton believes the burden should be spread and central government should make strengthening work tax deductible. And you know, it seems to be one of the things that would make quite a bit of difference to them. And building owners that we've talked to have said, look, it seems to be something that wouldn't have a huge impact on the government and you know, it might inspire a whole lot more work anyway. And if they're getting the, the money from that work, then that's, that's a positive thing anyway. So what funding is available for earthquake strengthening? For heritage building owners, some councils have contestable funding available each year. But with most of that funding amounting to less than half a million dollars, it's not a lot to go around. The Historic Places Trust also has an annual pool of half a million dollars. As strengthening work goes on in Wellington, the Trust's chief executive, Bruce Chapman, says that pool of money is contested by about 50 Category 1 building owners. 
It's really a drop in the ocean compared to what's required. What we're encouraging local authorities to do in New Zealand is to provide other forms of incentive. So all we have to do is tip the balance in favour of strengthening over demolition. So we're not suggesting that councils or central government have to pay all of the costs of strengthening buildings, but just tipping the balance in favour. And there are things like tradable development rights, consent fee waivers, rates rebates. And where is that balance sitting at the moment? Well, at the moment, most owners manage to find ways of paying for this themselves. So say it's relatively rare that demolition is necessary, but we accept that there will be situations, particularly in smaller towns in New Zealand, older commercial centres around provincial towns and cities where there will be no option other than demolition. The government estimates the private sector will have to spend $1.7 billion on strengthening, but its own bill is also likely to be huge. The total number of Crown-owned quake-prone buildings is not yet known, but for just the two largest property owners, Housing New Zealand and the Ministry of Education, it's in the hundreds. Housing New Zealand has 288 quake-prone buildings containing more than 1,000 units and is spending $45 million on its strengthening programme. In the last two weeks, the first strengthened units were unveiled in Lower Hutt, with the Housing Minister, Nick Smith, getting a tour. The homes were brought up to 67% of code, and Nick Smith says the money spent is worth it. In this case, we think spending the sort of 80 to 120 grand a pop is that it's worth it. There will be some of those 288 earthquake-prone buildings that when the full assessment is completed, the best choice for the taxpayer is going to be demolish and to build new, uh, and that will be an option in a number of properties. Each property needs to be assessed on a case-by-case -case example of how expensive it's going to be to get it up to standard, how much other maintenance work are we required to do with the building, are they of the size that meets the demand in those particular areas, they are all the factors. My commitment, though, is that this problem, this huge problem of earthquake-prone buildings will be dealt with by Housing Corporation by the end of next year. The Education Ministry is looking closely at 1,900 of its nearly 36,000 buildings. The strengthening bill could have climbed into the hundreds of millions of dollars, but through testing, the ministry's actually discovered its buildings are four to five times stronger than previously thought. The ministry's head of the Infrastructure Service Group, Kim Shannon, explains. What they did was they got these diggers and cranes and they basically tied, tied it to the building and pulled and pulled and pulled and they measured it. There's a very technical research project that shows how it withstood its pressure and about four to five times um, what they thought the building could hold, the windows started to crack and then at about six to seven the windows were broken. But the building stayed intact and it's a wonderful little um, video that just shows how the buildings flexed but then relaxed back into the, to their normal shape. Did you expect it what, to be crushed? We expected it to crack. We, we thought that the, um, it might start to pull apart at the seams, but actually um, there is a lot of resilience in the wooden frame and it just moved around and then, then went back into um, its, its shape. It was, it was a very impressive piece of research. But despite the good news that resulted from the testing, 67 school buildings will have to be strengthened in the next decade. I'm Kushla Norman and that's Insight for this week. If you would like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or send us a tweet at rnz underscore insight. 
I wrote and presented that programme. It was produced by Philippa Tolley, with technical production by Jeremy Veal.